Okay, um, good evening everybody. Welcome to this uh, session. Um, our speaker this evening is John Carriero. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of California at Los Angeles. He's an expert. He's probably an expert on many things, but we mostly know him as an expert on Descartes. Um, but this evening he's going to talk on a slightly wider remit. Um, the title is Epistemology, Past and Present. John. Thank you. The title of my talk is Epistemology, Past and Present. I'm interested in certain differences between how 17th century philosophers thought about knowledge and how contemporary philosophers think about it. These differences do not strike me as particularly subtle. In fact, they are gross enough that we might wonder about the extent to which 17th century philosophers and modern philosophers are interested in the same thing. We might also wonder about the extent to which it is helpful to apply the same label, say epistemology, to both sets of interest. I think, for example, one might reasonably raise the question, is there any epistemology in our sense of the term in Spinoza or Leibniz? Indeed, the English term epistemology seems to have been a 19th century invention, probably equivalent to the German Erkenntnis theory, which was used by the Kantian Cahill Reinhold at the end of the 18th century, but did not catch on to the middle of the 19th century. Or at any rate, that's what my Google search tells me. Let me begin with epistemology past. I want to consider some things that Spinoza and Leibniz say that bear on knowledge. Okay, this is on, on your handout. I'm not going to, in general, read these texts. Take a look at the first two items in text one and the example of these items at the end of that passage. This is one of the places where Spinoza classifies knowledge or cognition into three kinds. Let's begin with the lowest level, which Spinoza uh, divides into two subgroups. So the number one and two will go with the first group, three will go with the second group, and four will go with the third group. First, there is knowledge I have from hearsay. Spinoza gives us examples, the date of one's birth and whose one's parents are. So, I suppose, my knowledge that I was born in August 1956 and my knowledge that my parents are Nick and Kate Carriero fall in this class. Also at this bottom level, there is the knowledge I have from casual experience. Spinoza gives us examples, I shall die, oil feeds fire, and water extinguishes fire. Spinoza attaches to his first example, my cognition that I shall die, this remark, although they, those whom I, whom I have seen to die, have not, lived, have not all lived to the same age or have all died from the same disease. This suggests that part of what is involved in some, some cognitions being at the first level, especially in its being a matter of casual experience, is a certain lack of systematicity or theory. People live to different ages and die for all sorts of reasons, and I don't have much of an idea about what's behind this wealth of variety. I just come to know through experience as a matter of more or less brute empirical fact, as we might say, that people die. Now a question could be raised here as to whether Spinoza would count the items in either group as knowledge or perhaps as knowledge in our sense. 
One thing that might make us wonder about this is the by hearsay alone in the passage. There's a lively debate nowadays about testimony and knowledge, but basing one's belief on hearsay alone sounds rather promiscuous. Going with casual experience does not sound a whole lot better. There's another reason to worry. Spinoza offers a similar classification in the ethics, and in the ethics he writes, this is text two on the handout, cognition of the first kind is the only cause of falsity, whereas cognition of the second and third kind is necessarily true. I think he means that cognition of the, uh, that the first kind of cognition can be false and not simply cause falsity, and that might give us pause. Can a variety of cognition that admits of falsity really be knowledge? Perhaps then Spinoza doesn't really think that the things that belong to the bottom level count as knowledge, at least not knowledge in the full sense. <coughs> Spinoza seems comfortable attaching the Latin skio, I know, to some items in this first category. He says it is through this mode of perception that I skio my date of birth and who my parents are, and that I skio that I shall die, that oil feeds fire, and that water extinguishes fire. There is no sign of hesitation or qualification. To be sure, since some of the items found at the bottom level are false, I imagine Spinoza must be counting only the true ones as knowledge. That is, if I skio that oil feeds fire, if I know that oil feeds fire, then oil must really feed fire. What else might he be requiring? His remark that these, things which, that these are things which I have never doubted suggests a certain steadiness. That is, if I find myself going back and forth over whether oil feeds fire, then I probably don't skio that oil feeds fire, not at least in his book. Okay, truth and constancy of belief are required for skio. What else? Spinoza does not say, and that must strike us as odd. Surely, if my firm belief that oil feeds fire counts as knowledge, there must be some further requirement, some requirement having to do with justification or warrant or the reliability of the mechanism by which the belief is formed. But I don't see any interest here in such a further requirement. To be sure, Spinoza must think that both of these mechanisms, that is both hearsay and casual experience, despite their unprepossessing sound, are on the whole quite reliable. After all, he says of the lowest level, and it is in this way that I know, now that's not skills, novi, almost everything that is of practical use in life. My life would be something of a disaster if these mechanisms were not reliable. All the same, what is striking here is Spinoza's lack of attention to the place of justification or of the reliability of the mechanism in the issue of whether I really do skio these things. It simply does not seem to be a topic that draws his interest. His attitude seems to be, if I, come by these, if I came by my views about who my parents are and when I was born and when, uh, whether oil feeds fire, if I came by the, my, those beliefs in the usual ways, I skio these things. I don't mean this by way of criticism. It does not seem to me that Spinoza is wrong here. I do, after all, know when I was born and who my parents are and that oil feeds fire. And I probably came to this knowledge in more or less the way that Spinoza describes. 
Further, I do not mean to be attributing Spinoza a position in a contemporary epistemological debate. I don't mean to be suggesting, for example, that Spinoza in the first text is staking himself to the following. If I grew up in fake birthday county, where everyone lied to children about when they were born, and yet it turned out through a series of fortuitous coincidences that I accidentally came to have true beliefs about when I was born, I would thereby skio know that I was born in August 1956. My point is rather that Spinoza does not seem to be involved with these sorts of questions. I don't think he's a participant in this philosophical discussion. Let's look at text three on the handout from Leibniz. Leibniz does not use knowledge vocabulary there. Interestingly, he couches things in terms of actions and functioning, but his general stance seems in keeping with what we've just seen in Spinoza. In particular, Leibniz seems to have something similar in mind to Spinoza's lower level when he writes, this is text three, we are all mere empirics in three quarters of our actions. For example, when one expects a sunrise tomorrow, one acts as an empiric, seeing that this has always been so too heretofore. It's a little hard to know where Leibniz gets the three quarters figure, but let's leave that aside. Although Leibniz does not say whether my expectation that the sun will rise tomorrow counts as knowledge, I'd be a bit surprised if he didn't think that most people know that the sun will rise tomorrow, and I'm unaware of any place where he denies this. So I think he has a lower level that looks like Spinoza's <laughs> bottom tier. Spinoza and Leibniz both, both contrast their lower forms of cognition with other better forms of cognition. For Spinoza, there are two better forms, each involving essence. The second form of cognition, that would be item three on text one, covers a posteriori cognition in the old sense of a posteriori, where one moves from property or effect or consequence to essence or ground, or to essence or cause or ground. The third and highest form, item four on the text, covers a priori cognition, again in the old sense, where one moves inside out from essence to property or cause to effect or ground to consequence. One of Spinoza's examples in the treatise on the improvement of the understanding involves sensation and the mind-body union. He says, from the fact that I sense the way I do, I can infer that I am united to a body, but I cannot understand absolutely what the sensation and union are. This is a case of item three in the list. By way of contrast, if I know the essence of the soul, this tells me that the soul is united to the body. So I work from essence to some property. This is an item, example of item four in Spinoza's list. For our purposes, the difference between items three and four won't be important uh, this evening. What is important is that both the higher forms involve cognition um, of essence. Leibniz tells us that there is a better level that belongs to the astronomer who judges by reason. Uh, Leibniz adds in the second extract in text three that even the astronomer's take on things is limited. Uh, he says only the, only the astronomer predicts the sunrise with reason, but even his prediction will ultimately fail when the cause of daylight, which is by no means eternal, stops. 
Leibniz goes on to describe reason in the true sense, which he says depends on necessary or eternal truths as those of logic, number, and geometry, which make the connections of ideas indubitable and their conclusions infallible. It's hard to know where Leibniz winds up with the uh, empiric, the astronomer, and the mathematician. Perhaps his position is something along these lines. The empiric doesn't know the reason for things any more than the dog does, according to Leibniz. The astronomer has penetrated to the reason of into the reason of things, but her grasp is incomplete, as is witnessed by the fact that there are limitations to her predictions. Perhaps no human being can fathom the ultimate reason for astronomical goings-on, which would perhaps then convey the limits of astronomy. Mathematicians, it seems, according to Leibniz, can at least get to the bottom of things. Now, I think Spinoza and Leibniz are focused on something similar when they think about the better form of cognition, let me call it, that's putting, grouping two and three together in Spinoza. What seems central for them is what we might call understanding, at least in one sense of that multifaceted term. For Spinoza, understanding is a matter of getting to and from the essence of things. I think the connection may be quasi a quasi-grammatical matter, so that I understand why oil feeds fire to the extent, and only to the extent, that I can trace the feeding back to what oil is and what fire is that is, to the essence of oil and the essence of fire. For Spinoza, I believe, fully doing this would, be, would require grasping how and why oil structure and fire structure arise within the general causal order produced in extension by God or substance. These are the same things for Spinoza. Leibniz does not use the word essence much, but I think the astronomer's judging by reason amounts to a form of understanding in Leibniz's book, an understanding that's limited in certain ways. So I take it the primary difference between the lower and higher level of cognition is between knowing that something is so and knowing why something is so. The astronomer can tell us something about why the sun will rise tomorrow, even if her understanding is incomplete. In a famous remark, uh, this is in text four, Spinoza describes the lower cognition as like conclusions without premises. Here we should keep in mind that in the tradition, the premises were paradigmatically supposed to explain the conclusion, show why it is true, and not just establish that it is true. Recognizing this can help us with the oddity of something we noticed earlier. Recall in text one, Spinoza said that I skio some things by hearsay alone. We wondered how something I have by hearsay alone could count as knowledge. I think Spinoza's point is probably this. Having something by hearsay alone is to be contrasted with seeing for oneself, with understanding. When my colleague Tony Martin tells me that the continuum hypothesis is independent of ZFC, and I haven't worked through the demonstration, I have this through hearsay alone. When I've worked through the demonstration myself so that I understand why this is, then it is no longer hearsay alone. In other words, the force of the alone is to indicate the absence of understanding rather than to, say, hint at some general deficiency in the character of testimony. While the center of gravity for the distinction that interests Spinoza and Leibniz lies in the difference between not understanding and understanding, the higher form of cognition is also marked by infallibility. 
In text 2, Spinoza tells us that cognition of the second and third kind, that is, essence involving cognition, is necessarily true. Spinoza says that when it comes to mathematical demonstrations, only a certain kind of error is possible. Errors that arise from a errors that arise from defective memory or attention. Um, Spinoza suggests in a scolium, this is text six, it's a long one, that in uh, metaphysics, or, which includes theology for him, and mathematics, most errors result solely from incorrect application of words to things. So there's certain kinds of mistakes that are impossible in, in, in certain areas, at least when you're thinking clearly, according to Spinoza and Leibniz. Perhaps we could say that in these settings, um, uh, Spinoza, the Spinoza and Leibniz are thinking about here, I will get to the truth if I am being sufficiently careful. My going wrong will be traceable to some carelessness on my part. Now, carelessness isn't the perfect word for what I want here. And in any case, we need to keep in mind that a careless mistake may be hard to detect and of some consequence. In any case, a different sort of mistake seems intrinsic to lower or empirical cognition. Hearsay and casual experience can go, way, go wrong in ways I cannot, in principle, control through care and attention. Because Leibniz thinks my errors in mathematics must be traceable to lapses on my part, he thinks Descartes' attempt to doubt mathematics in the meditations misfired. Spinoza may be implying something similar in text 6, where he insists that no standard of truth, there is no standard of truth clearer and more certain than a true idea. A true idea for Spinoza is a fairly involved thing and involves cognition of the second or third uh, kind. Why are only certain kinds of error possible in the setting? Well, part of the answer seems to lie in the openness of certain subject matters, ultimately the openness of the essences that order those subject matters to the human mind. Descartes himself writes in the Meditations, this is text 8, of certain structural features associated with extension that their truth is so open and so much in harmony with my nature that on first discovering them, it seems that I am not so much learning something new as remembering what I knew before. Or it seems like noticing for the first time things which were long present within me, uh, although I had never turned my mental gaze on them before. Descartes believes that when I think of a triangle and notice that its largest side must be opposite its greatest angle, I am also witnessing a profound attunement between me and the thing I know, the, the triangle's nature. Spinoza and Leibniz agree. Indeed, I think Spinoza may have thought when Descartes doubted mathematics, he risked, he risked turning the triangle's essence with which I am intellectually engaged into something else, perhaps into some mental picture of the nature or some superficial image of it. At least that's one way of taking Spinoza's intriguing remark in text 7 that nobody can doubt a true idea, which I take to be an essence involving idea of the second or third kind of cognition, that nobody can doubt a true idea unless that person thinks that an idea is some dumb thing like a picture on a tablet and not a mode of thinking to wit the very act of understanding. Now, a certain temptation arises at this juncture. 
The temptation is to internalize the subject matter, to internalize the object known. The things we know in these cases where error seems possible only through carelessness or inattention must, it seems, be thought-dependent in some way, must be something like concepts or ideas, or at least dependent on our justificatory and epistemic practices. Perhaps the reason error is impossible here in these domains is that our justificatory or epistemic practices themselves guarantee truth. And perhaps further, if our ways of knowing are in a certain sense foolproof in these spheres, spheres, this is because the things we know are internal to those ways of knowing. If there is an appropriate necessary connection between our ways of knowing and essences, this is because the essences depend on those ways of knowing. I'll try to situate this line of thought historically toward the end of the talk. For the moment, I want to point out that this is not how Descartes, Spinoza, and Leibniz saw things. They did think there was a profound cognitive fit between us and the universe. But in their view, this is because our cognitive nature has been made to harmonize with the subject matter, not because the subject matter has been made to harmonize with us. One way to see this surprisingly is to reflect on their conception of supreme beatitude or blessedness and felicity or happiness. For each of them, supreme beatitude or felicity involves having the highest form of cognition of which we are capable, a form of cognition that consists in our becoming deeply connected to the universe's ratio, its basic ordering principle. They, following a long tradition, worked this idea out through our grasp of the universe's essences, in, particularly, in particular, through our grasp of God's essences, which plays a central role in this cognition. This is what the medieval visio dei was all about. But if one had a view that the things that we grasp, the essences, are merely our own mental concepts or ideas, our own constructs, as it were, then it does not seem that our grasp of them brings us in touch with the universe's ordering principle, the universe's ratio. My point here is naive and simple-minded. If, for example, you think that even a stone bears the image of God, albeit remotely, then understanding, say, its extension and the geometry that goes into the stone takes you a step closer to the universe's basic ordering principle. Uh, you could look at tech, text 9 to see Descartes arguing along those lines, uh, as reported by Berman. On the other hand, if you think with Kant, for example, uh, that that, that geometry that we find in the stone is grounded in the form of our outer to intuition, roughly that that geometry is an artifact of human ways of knowing, then understanding triangles does not get you any closer to the universe's basic ordering principle. It does not contribute to what Descartes, Spinoza, and Leibniz see as our highest good. This last observation helps orient us toward how 17th century thinkers thought about the ontological status of essences. Standardly, finite essences were seen as various ways of limiting God's unbounded perfection or reality. On such a view, cognition of essences connects us with what is most real, what is most independent of us. Spinoza's doctrine that extension is one of God's attributes is an especially vivid version of such a view. God's necessarily existent extension serves as a sort of ur essence for the finite figures that may be 
carved or described in the technical geometrical sense, may be carved or described in extension. This necessarily existing extension is a real thing for Spinoza, not a mind-dependent construct. This is an instance of the traditional idea that God's essence serves as the necessarily existent or structure from which all the finite essences or all the finite structures are derived. I want to now uh, turn to epistemology present, and I want to begin by drawing attention to an issue that lies at the heart of many modern discussions, but which seems to me largely absent from the 17th century context. One place this issue arises is in a certain line of thought about skepticism. Another place it arises is in the Gettier problem about whether knowledge is true justified belief. Let's begin with skepticism. The issue I have in mind is most easily seen in discussions of the so-called closure principle. One might think that if I am to know that P, I must also know everything that is incompatible with my knowing that P. I must know that everything incompatible with that is false. For example, if being awake is a condition of my knowing that I am giving a talk now, then if I am to know I am giving a talk now, I must know that I am not dreaming. As I formulated the closure principles much too broad because it won't allow me to know piece of number theory without knowing everything that piece entails, uh, it's not going to be important uh, for our purposes, so, so let's put that aside. Or to take another example borrowed from Barry Stroud, if I know you are coming to the party tonight and my knowing this is incompatible with your being struck by a meteorite on your way over, because in that unfortunate case you won't get to the party, then I must know I must also know that you will, will not be struck by a meteorite on your way over. Why might you think my knowledge of whether I am dreaming or whether you will be hit by a meteorite matters to whether I know I'm giving a talk or whether I know you are coming to the party? Well, I think, it is, I th well, I think what is at issue here is a worry about the connection between the justification for my belief, my beliefs warrant uh, evidential basis or epistemic ground, and the truth. To the extent that the connection rests on factors I don't epistemically control, it seems a matter of luck that I'm getting things right. That is, if what justificatory basis I have for a belief is compatible with a skeptical scenario, even a very outre one, then there is, to that extent, an element of luck intruding between my justification and the truth. And it is natural to wonder whether knowledge tolerates this intrusion of luck. Could it turn out that knowledge, the real thing, knowledge in the fullest sense, is held hostage to fortune in this way? Once it is noticed that our epistemic practices don't guarantee truth, that I can in some sense be fully justified, and even so, it can turn out that through, I can turn out to be wrong through some mishap, uh, attention then turns to, at least sometimes, to the question of how much by justification is required in order for us to know. Does the concept of knowledge, or the correct use of the expression, I know, require such things? Perhaps, for example, our concept of knowledge does not require that I know you won't be struck by a meteorite in order for me to know that you are coming to the party. Or perhaps in order for it to be in or, sorry, in per, perhaps it's being in order for me to claim legitimately, I know that you are coming. Um, it doesn't require that I know you won't be struck. At this point, the philosophical conversation becomes about our epistemic practices 
and about the interplay between those practices and the concept of knowledge. Barry Stroud captures this turn of thought in the significance of philosophical skepticism. In the course of assessing our prospects for avoiding external world skepticism, he remarks, this is text 10 on the handout, that conclusion, namely external world skepticism, can be avoided, it seems to me, only if we can find some way to avoid the requirement that we must know that we are not dreaming if we are to know anything about the world around us. But that requirement cannot be avoided if it is nothing more than an instance of a general procedure we recognize and insist on in making and assessing knowledge claims in everyday and scientific life. We have no notion of knowledge other than what is embodied in those procedures and practices. So if that requirement is a fact of our ordinary conception of knowledge, we will have to accept the conclusion that no one knows anything about the world around us. Epistemology has become a certain reflection on our epistemic practices, our procedures and practices, as Stroud puts it, uh, and their relation to the truth and knowledge. In Stroud's view, we have no notion of knowledge apart from those procedures and practices. I think the Gettier problem can also be viewed as a piece of epistemic practice theory. The Gettier problem is about whether, mind, whether knowledge is simply true justified belief. More specifically, it's about the sort of connection between justification and truth that is needed for knowledge. So, for example, I have very good reason to believe that you are coming to the party. It turns out, though, that my reason was based on a misunderstanding. A usually reliable friend told me, but on this occasion she misspoke and was thinking of somebody else. She had no idea you were coming to the party. Still, you come to the party. So it seems I have a true justified belief that you will be coming to the party, yet it is unclear that what I have should count as knowledge that you are coming. Rather, it seems I got lucky in some way that prevents me from knowing that you would come. The connection between justification and truth seems just too tenuous for me to know that you are coming to the party. Given that our justificatory or evidential basis rarely, um, if ever, guarantees truth, in what way must that evidential basis be connected with my getting onto the truth in order for me to know? Pure coincidence, after all, doesn't seem enough. So what must be the nature of the non-arbitrary or the non-accidental relationship between my being justified and my being right if I am to know? What seems to me new here um, is to focus on epistemic practice theory itself. The 17th century discussions do not, for example, invoke the juridical terminology, evidence, justification, warrant, and so on. Descartes does on occasion speak of things being evident, but he does not speak of one thing's being evidence for something else. Spinoza's attitude seems to me typical. He attaches the label skio, I know, to my views about my parents and birth acquired through hearsay and my views about my mortality and what oil does to fire acquired through casual experience without raising any issues about whether these roots are reliable enough for the things acquired in this way to count as knowledge. How reliable such roots must be in order to provide a level, level of justification sufficient for the views to measure up to the standard necessary for them to count as knowledge 
does not seem to be a question on Spinoza's radar screen. Further, the point of perfecting our cognition by moving to the lower grade, to the two higher grades, is not to improve the justification or evidential support for my cognition. It is true, Spinoza thinks, that as I perfect my cognition by replacing my haphazard and fragmentary acquisitions with a systematic understanding of reality, my cognition becomes more firm and secure so that eventually error becomes impossible. But the point of the movement is not to achieve infallibility, rather it is to achieve um, systematic understanding. If somehow my, my mind could be reshaped so that it infallibly got a hundred on a, a true false test completely describing the universe, say a guardian angel whispered the answers in my ear, Spinoza would not be impressed. What matters to him is one's coming to an appreciation of how things fit together, an appreciation which might be manifested in doing well on such a test, or at least in parts of such a test, but which is not to be identified with performing well on such a test. Because Spinoza is interested in systematic as opposed to frag fragmentary cognition, a focus on claims like this is a hand or my friend will be coming to the party or that is a barn would seem peculiar to him. My sense is that he would think reflecting on the justificatory basis or warrant we have for these claims and detailing the relationship of that basis to our concept of knowledge is unlikely to help with what he cares about, how to achieve understanding. One might argue that a systematic understanding of the sort that Spinoza is interested in will be impossible until we have first elucidated the justificatory basis of my belief that I was born in August 1956, and we have figured out whether that basis is enough for the belief to count as knowledge. I doubt that Spinoza would agree. I suspect he would think that these questions more or less take care of themselves, and that what is important here is not getting a better handle on a theory of our skewing these items hanging around at the lowest level of cognition, but rather getting some grip on how to move where we can from the first level to the second two, which for Spinoza means getting to a clearer cognition of essences. Suppose that this is on the right track. Suppose that epistemic practice theory is not a going concern in the 17th century. If so, then there's an interesting historical and philosophical question of how and why philosophers became interested in epistemic practice theory. Now, the work I've taken the first extract from is Spinoza's treatise on the improvement of the understanding, a work usually seen as Spinoza's treatise on method. Descartes and Leibniz were also interested in method, and it seems to me that method occupies some of the territory for them that epistemic practice theory does for us. The next thing to notice is that their philosophizing about method takes place in the context of a certain background assumption. Descartes, Spinoza, Leibniz all start from the assumption that the human being, especially in its intellectual dimension, is deeply attuned to the universe's ratio. By this, I mean that we are able to grasp the essences of things, which enable us to understand why things are the way they are, and we have some access even to the universe's ultimate ordering principle, God. That latter access involves not just the cognition that God is, that there is an ordering principle, 
but also the cognition of what God is, um, the character or nature of the ordering principle. As Descartes, Spinoza, and Leibniz see things, the task of method is to teach us how to find this attunement. Descartes tries to show us how to move from obscure and confused perception to clear and distinct perception. Spinoza shows us how to move from inadequate ideas that follow the order of the affections of the body to adequate ideas that follow the order of the intellect. In Leibniz's Meditations on Cognition, Truth, and Ideas is an attempt to put clarity and distinctness, inadequacy and inadequacy on a more formal footing. There's an underlying assumption in all of this that human intellectual cognition mirrors the universe's fundamental structure, what I've been calling the universe's ratio, and that our principal cognitive task is to render this mirroring explicit by making it clear and distinct, as articulate as we can. Often this process involves reconsidering our superficial reactions to experience and entrenched dogma and removing misconception inculcated through blind obedience to authority or lazy reliance on the world of the senses. This is a decidedly optimistic picture of our place as knowers and comprehenders of the universe. I think optimism was encouraged by the scientific revolution, which, is, which suggested to them that we were impressively on the right track. Locke, however, took a very different view of the situation. As, it, as the title of his ma major work suggests, an essay concerning human understanding, Locke, like Descartes, Spinoza, and Leibniz, is primarily interested in understanding. His lead question is not how is knowledge possible, but rather how and to what extent is understanding possible. And his answer is that we have very little genuine understanding of the world. This comes out, for example, in, Leibniz's I'm sorry, in Locke's denial that we can grasp the real essences of things. After all, to grasp the thing's essential structure is to understand it. Rather than seeing the mind as deeply attuned to the universe's ratio, Locke sees it as parachuted into a world that gives every indication of being cognitively beyond it. We find ourselves surrounded by fantastically complex corpuscular structures that seem to lie beyond our cognitive grasp. We don't understand the basic natures of the corpuscles themselves. Rather than insist on the sort of understanding aspired to by Descartes, Spinoza, and Leibniz, Locke thinks this is text 11, we must be prepared to sit down in a quiet ignorance of those things which upon examination are found to be beyond the reach of our capacities. Hume is an interesting case, too. He is also, I think, interested in understanding, as is perhaps singled, signaled by the title of the first book of the treatise, of the understanding. He does not pretend to, this is text 12, discover the ultimate original qualities of human nature, nor does he think this impossibility of explaining ultimate principles should be esteemed a defect in the science of man, because it is a defect common to all the sciences. Hume's ultimate original qualities and ultimate principles seem to me to occupy roughly the same territory that essences do for the tradition. Thus, he agrees with Locke that we don't have the sort of understanding aspired to by Descartes, Spinoza, and Leibniz. But Hume thinks we do understand all the same, 
and that Locke and his rationalist predecessors have a faulty picture of what understanding looks like. The tradition took understanding to involve a necessity that resulted from getting onto essence, from insight into the universe's ratio. Hume offers a different account of understanding, an account of our getting onto the, uh, where, sorry, an account where the necessity that characterizes human understanding is not a mark of our getting onto the universe's essential structure, its ultimate principles, but rather something that comes from our side of things. For Hume, as with Locke, there's no assumption to the effect that we are tuned to the universe's basic order. Hume's suggestion that we are responsible for the necessity associated with understanding may sound wild, but I think he's responding to something real. Let me explain. In the tradition, I have been pointing out there's a sort of internal connection between essence and understanding. An essence is a thing's intelligible structure. To understand the thing is to grasp its essence. The necessity surrounding understanding is supposed to come from insight into a thing's essence, an insight that tells us why something has to be so. The new science puts some pressure on this picture. As global geometrical and kinetic invariances, laws you could say, begin to feel prior and more important, it becomes less clear how to think about the local essences developed from those invariances. Nevertheless, uh, Descartes and Spinoza, through their idea that the essence of matter is extension, are still working with the thought that these global invariances can be made as intuitive and natural as the principles of Euclidean geometry. Newton's theory of gravity disrupts this hope because it seems impossible to trace gravity back to the essence of matter, to principles that seem as obvious and natural as those found in geometry. And as the matter as extension approach becomes untenable, the attunement picture becomes harder to maintain as well. It, becomes more, it is more difficult to think that Newtonian mechanics is built into us, available to our clear and distinct reflection in the way that Descartes and Spinoza suppose, suppose that the global geometrical and kinetic invariances are built into us. After Newton, it is much harder to think that we are operating in the user-friendly universe that Descartes and Spinoza believed we cognitively inhabited. As Locke and Hume criticized their, their predecessors' uh, claims to grasp essences, their, their arguments move things in the direction of epistemic practice theory. For example, Locke's criticisms of Descartes claim that the essence of the mind, uh, sorry, Locke's criticisms of Descartes' claim that the essence of the mind is to think and the claim that the essence of body is extension those criticisms are that um, these positions are not only implausible on their face, but there's no good reason that's been brought forward in support of them. He regards the Cartesian doctrines as pieces of unwarranted, or we could say unjustified, dogmatism. Hume's criticisms of attempts to prove on the basis of reason that whatever begins to exist must have a cause of existence uh, they get us closer still to epistemic practice theory in that Hume thinks he has a very general argument to show this is not the kind of thing we could possibly hope to prove on the basis of reason. But even so, Hume is more interested in telling us how it happens that we come to think that certain things are necessary than in telling us whether we are justified or warranted in so thinking, somewhat to the frustration of his contemporary readers. Justification and warrant and the relation to knowledge are not yet being explored for their own sake. 
it might be felt, of course, that the focus on justification that I don't find in Locke and Hume was already present in Descartes. In particular, it's natural to read the skepticism in the first meditation as moving the philosophical conversation toward issues of justification, evidence, and warrant, toward what I have been calling epistemic practice theory. A sign of this may be that Descartes asks us to reflect on the status of knowledge claims, like I am sitting by a fire and I have a piece of paper in my hand, items that don't seem to be obvious candidates for inclusion in the sort of systematic understanding that Spinoza and Leibniz are interested in. And as a matter of fact, Stroud, uh, in the book I quoted from, devotes the first chapter to the med first meditation. This is a large topic. Um, I agree Descartes' meditations can be read as an exercise in epistemic practice theory. Harry Frankfurt, uh, for example, in a well-known book uh, back in 1970, offered a reading of the first meditation, according to which it is concerned with, quote, rules of evidence and epistemic, quote, policies. I think that most commentators today probably still read the first meditation as an exercise in the rules or principles any meditator should recognize as constitutive of conscientious believing. There is another school of interpretation, however, through, um, which sees Descartes as employing skeptical considerations, not for the purpose of exploring epistemic practice theory, but rather in order to raise certain metaphysical questions. For my own part, I believe he is using the doubt to, raise, to address very large-scale issues about the relationship between the human mind and the world, questions having to do with what I've been calling attunement. In particular, I see those arguments as part of Descartes' effort to replace one picture of that attunement, a picture according to which our basic attunement with reality runs through our senses, with another picture of that attunement, according to which our basic attunement with reality runs through intellectual ideas with which the human mind has been innately endowed by God. Because of the large-scale nature of the issue Descartes was attempting to address, it was important that he get the meditator to doubt the senses in a particularly thoroughgoing way, which is why I believe the lowly beliefs that there is a fire and I'm holding a piece of paper in my hand show up in the discussion. I don't want to enter into a full-scale discussion of Descartes' use of skepticism here. Rather, I'd like to consider a brief moment from the fourth meditation, in part to illustrate the difference between the two approaches, and in part to give some sense of why I resist locating Descartes in epistemic practice theory. The text I'm going to consider is a piece of the positive view that Descartes goes on to develop in partial response to the questions raised in the first meditation. So this is text 13 on your handout. Now, when I do not perceive clearly and distinctly enough, even if I abstain from bringing my judgment to bear, I'm sorry, then if I abstain from bringing my judgment to bear, it is clear that I act correctly and I am not deceived. But if in such cases I either affirm and deny, then I am not using my free will correctly. If I go for the alternative which is false, then obviously I shall be in error. If I take the other side, then it is by pure chance that I arrive at the truth, and I shall be at fault, since it's clear by the natural light that the percep perception of the intellect should always proceed to determination of the will. <coughs> now, what Descartes is saying here is that if you don't see something clearly enough and yet go ahead and affirm it anyway, you are culpable in some way. You've used your will improperly, he thinks, even if it should turn out that what you affirm is true. 
So it is clear that there is something normative going on here. This normativity, uh, coupled with the worry about getting onto the truth by luck, might lead one to take this passage in the direction of modern epistemic practice theory. Perhaps Descartes' thought is, if you affirm something with an insufficient justificatory basis, you are not an epistemically responsible believer, even if it should turn out that, what, that you happen to get things right. Or maybe more simply, if you believe something on weak evidence, you are at fault, even if your belief is true. And it is a short step from here to the further claim, although we should keep in mind that it is a step not taken in this passage, um, that this deficiency precludes your true belief from counting as knowledge. So read, Descartes would be sounding a theme in this passage, namely the interplay among justification, truth, luck, and knowledge, which has become central to epistemic practice theory. But is that what Descartes is doing here? Descartes does not seem to be keen on justification or evidence in this passage. Rather, he seems to be focused on the quality of perception. I think that's important. What he's saying is that if I take a position on some question where I do not perceive clearly and distinctly, and I turn out to get things right, this is due only to chance. Now, perceiving clearly and distinctly for Descartes often amounts to something akin to understanding. So I think another way of putting Descartes' injunction is that I ought not to take positions on matters I do not understand very well. As he says, my, the perception of the intellect should always precede the determination of the will. Moreover, if I take a position on a question concerning something I do not understand well, and I happen to get things right, this is no cause for celebration. Indeed, I believe Descartes would agree with Spinoza that an angel whispering the answers in my ear so that I non-accidentally always got correct things I perceive only obscurely and confusedly, that would be cause for only very limited celebration. I don't have understanding. Perhaps Descartes would, want, would go on to say in such cases where I get onto the truth by luck, my beliefs do not amount to knowledge. I'm not sure. It's hard to believe that he doesn't think that some of my beliefs about matters I do not understand well, that is about matters I do not clearly and distinctly perceive, uh, that at least some of those beliefs don't count as knowledge. What I do think is clear, though, is that he would deny that my lucky conjectures have, can have a place in Scientia. There's some sort of norm in play in the passage. Be careful about the quality of your perception. Be careful about whether you really understand before you believe. However, it seems to me a retrojection of later developments to read this norm as a piece of epistemic practice theory. Sometimes such retrojections are valuable in illuminating. Here, I think there's a danger of serious distortion. For when we read Descartes' norm along the lines of, if you affirm something with an insufficient justificatory basis, you are not an epistemically responsible believer, even if you get things right. Or we read it along the lines, if you believe something on, the, on weak evidence, you are at fault, even if you get things right. Um, when you go in that direction, I think it's very hard not to think of your perception as evidence and to construe clarity and distinctness as marks as the, of the quality of the evidence rather than as marks of the quality of your link to the subject matter. When I perceive clearly and distinctly, I am especially well-tuned in to what I perceive. Being well-tuned in occupies a different logical space from having good evidence for. For example, when I am paying attention and, focus, and am focused on the nature of a triangle, Noticing its greatest side must be opposite its greatest angle. 
It is not as if the clarity of that perception is somehow providing me with evidence for the truth that the longest side of a triangle is opposite the greatest side. Any more than the good and light in my unobstructed view is providing me with evidence for there being a table in front of me. The clarity of my perception, like the good light of my clear and like the good light in my clear and unobstructed view, is rather a feature of my engagement with the subject matter. In fact, it seems to me that it is not Descartes but Kant who sets us on the path of epistemic practice theory. At the beginning of the transcendental deduction, he famously shifts the epistemological focus from questions of quid facti, a fact, to questions uh, quid juris, questions of law. This is uh, text 14. Kant, in that discussion, is explicitly concerned with Locke and Hume. In particular, neither Locke, uh, Locke's uh, theory nor Hume's theory can answer the normative question that he, Kant, is interested in uh, concerning the applicability of the categories to experience. In particular, how these concepts can entitle us to make claims that go beyond experience, as claims about, say, causal necessity uh, do. This is because Locke and Hume both offered empirical derivations of their concepts. Locke did not notice that the concepts needed to have a non-empirical origin, if they were to be used in an experienced, transcendent way. Hume did notice this, but he was unable to explain how they could have such an origin and gave them a subjective origin via the loss of association. Because of this, Hume failed to secure the reality of our cognition of pure mathematics and general natural science. What Hume missed, Kant says in this discussion, is the possibility that the understanding itself, by means of these concepts, the categories, could be the originator of the experience in which its objects are encountered. Kant's emphasis on the distinction between quid facti and quid juris is a step in the direction of epistemic practice theory. It comes with an assistance that the categories must have a non-empirical origin, a sort of origin that is meant to distance the justificatory project that he's engaged in from empirical psychology. But there is, an, there is another, in some ways, deeper point here. Kant's employment of the juridical terminology is connected with, perhaps ultimately funded by, a second idea, namely his Copernican revolution. The answer to the quid juris question, Kant says, lies in the thought that human understanding is, through the categories, the originator of experience in which its objects are to be are encountered. Now for Kant, categories or concepts function as rules through which we combine the manifold of experience um, of objects. One way of thinking about such rules is that they are embodied in our epistemic practices. The categories represent our fundamental epistemic practices for ordering our sensory encounters with things into a coherent system of objects. For Kant, what a concept is and what an object are are understood in terms of our epistemic practices, and the point of the origination claim is that in, impor that in important ways, experience and its objects are induced by those practices. It's worth remembering that Descartes doesn't have this Kantian toolkit. <coughs> Descartes is still working with ideas and things rather than concepts and objects. An idea for Descartes is not a rule, but a presentation of a thing. And a thing for Descartes is not a rule-governed combination of the manifold, but a reality. At any rate, this move gives Kant an interesting perspective on what I've been calling 
the human mind's attunement with reality. Kant's Copernican revolution is an attempt to recover a subject matter appropriate to human understanding, let's call it empirical reality. Unlike Locke and Hume, Kant thinks that the human intellect is deeply attuned to that reality. The ne necessary structure that we discern indeed pervades the empirical world. But that reality is to a certain extent conditioned by human epistemic practices. Our profound attunement with it does not, as Descartes, Spinoza, and Leibniz thought, put us in touch with the universe's or principle, in touch with what Kant calls transcendental reality. So whereas Descartes thought that even stones and such like have the image and likeness of God, albeit a very remote, minute, and indistinct image, Kant holds that our cognition of the stone is much too much the product of our own work to tell us anything about God. Let me conclude. I've tried today to articulate my sense that traditional epistemology may not reach back as far as it's often thought. Perhaps in a way to 1781 with the first edition of the Critique of Pure Reason, but not, I think, to 1641 with the Meditations. I think this matters for two reasons. First, it is important not to read later agendas into earlier thinkers because it distorts their thought and it makes it harder for us to learn from them. Second, I think it's important for us to understand the ways in which our own projects are distinctive and how and why they came to seem philosophically compelling. On the second point, I've made only a start. There's considerable difference between the sort of thing that Kant was doing and traditional epistemology. Clearly, the justificatory practices surrounding the category seem rather different from, though perhaps not unrelated to, the justificatory practices appealed to in contemporary discussions. There's much more work to be done here. Thank you. <laughs>